This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Todd Campo and Felipe Baliero. Uh, to talk about mobility and working from home and cars and oil demand and all sorts of things. So, Felipe, Todd, how are both of you? Doing well, Hill. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, Todd, you're doing well? Yep. And so, so Todd is in Michigan. Yes. Correct. Yep. And Felipe and I both in Houston. So, uh, that those who are listening can't see behind Todd right now, but, but Todd has a picture of, I guess, the Detroit Red Wings championship behind him. Dominic Hasek from, yes, back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. So that's a reference that I get because of Sega Genesis and <laughs> <laughs> the NHL 95, I think. The unbeatable Detroit Red Wings teams from NHL 95, yes. <laughs> and Detroit's a hockey town in many ways, right? Absolutely. Uh, they still go by the hockey town moniker, yes. Okay. I guess the Pistons... Uh aren't taking that away or the Lions anytime soon. <laughs> Not uh, the, the the Pistons seem to be on a good trajectory. I think the Lions are also uh, headed in the right direction, but uh, it will be a while. Um, everyone on sports radio here says that Detroit will be a football town if the Lions ever figure out how to win a Super Bowl. <laughs> so we're a hockey town until then. <laughs> yes. How about Matt Stafford? Because he's still alive in the playoffs right now. Is there hometown support for him? I guess it's not hometown, but but former town support. Yeah, I think it's 50-50. You know, personally, I'm pretty supportive of Matthew Stafford. I think he did a lot for the community. And, uh, you know, I think he he definitely uh, laid it all out on the line for all his years as a Lion. So so I certainly wish him the best. You know, I guess we'll see if he can, he can make it happen with the Rams here. Uh, I guess this weekend, I think, is the next uh, the next round. See if you can get to the the big game. Yeah, Felipe, can watch, we can watch with impartiality uh, from Houston because <laughs> we've got no football team to be proud of right now locally. Nope. Not, we haven't been for a while. No, no, this is uh, this is very true. I guess we had baseball or have baseball. Well, th- this is not a sports talk show. <laughs> I ran into um, Jose Altuve the other day at my at my tennis club. He was really his brother playing pickleball. <laughs> That's really? awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. Did well, I got to tell you, Hill, I love this conversation because my master's degree is actually in sport management, so I could totally do a sport podcast. That'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, how how did you end up in auto analysis? I was in auto before I finished my master's degree. So those jobs are uh, very competitive and they usually want you to start at either low or no salary. And by that time, I was like, uh, I, I don't think so. <laughs> it can be a hobby. <laughs> well, I hear that, like on sport, the, the a lot of people get into sports journalism 
to meet their heroes. And, and I hear the you, you find out that all your heroes are not very cool. And so there's a real kind of the, 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 the shining of sports sometimes disappears for people once they get in there and they're like, oh, wow, so and so I idolized him in my youth and he's a complete jerk. I, yeah, I've heard that as well. I haven't experienced that personally, but I, I have heard that too. Well, uh, hopefully that's not the case in automobile analysis or energy analysis. <laughs> I haven't found it to be. I have not found it to be the case. Well, so so all of that to say that that we are uh, that the three of us working from our homes um, right now. What we wanted to talk about is the the effect of working from home, which seems to be more and more normal. So more more often. You know, you're, you're seeing people, you know, as we are here with, with their decorations, uh, their, their home decorations behind them, hearing dogs, seeing children, and, and it has changed human behavior and commuting. And, uh, you know, you, you and I, where we all talked a couple weeks ago, I've had to change my battery uh, earlier this year because I don't drive my car enough, which is great because I'm not putting miles in my car, but I wasn't planning on dead battery. Uh, as a result of that. Obviously, this started with the pandemic and the lockdown and all of that, um, which seems to be moving past us, though. Uh, so some habits might be here for, for a while. But Felipe, can you maybe paint a picture of kind of what, what happened from the perspective of mobility and oil demand and some of, you know, you, you do a lot of this in, in terms of your forecasting. What, uh, you know, what, what was the setup and, and where are we today? Sure. So I Pre-pandemic levels, if we think about the population breakout of people that drove themselves versus used public transportation or rode their bikes um, or scooters, um, about 78% of personal transport used to be within the private vehicle. So this is pre-pandemic levels. This is global did, or U.S.? It did, just looking at the U.S. as an okay. example, right? There's there's most clarity in these statistics uh, that are published by government entities as well as private organizations that are tracking this information. Um, but if you break that down then into a few different categories of how people drive, about a quarter of total personal vehicle miles traveled were attributable to commuting to and from work. About another quarter for shopping and errands, five and a half, six percent for school and church activities, another 24 percent for social and recreational activities, and about four percent or so um, for other activities, whatever um, th those may be. It's just kind of miscellaneous trips. When you then hit the pandemic, our energy clients approached us to understand what the potential impact to fuel consumption, more specifically gasoline and diesel, would be. I think it's very logical to think that if 25% of all trips are suddenly disappeared from, from our day-to-day -day lives, that you'd see about a proportional uh, decrease in, in liquid fuels consumption. So what my colleagues and I did was to investigate the labor force within the United States to understand the types of jobs that people had, as well as commuting statistics. So for example, the average commute in the US is about 29 minutes or so each way. Not quite 30. Um, not quite 30. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also looked up the average speeds. Um, we looked up when people are driving offside peak hours, what average speeds were then too. And we were able to put together a list of driving 
behaviors or driving activities to determine how much VMT or vehicle miles traveled, again, would be lost as a result of this, right? And then using data or statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics in order to understand what kind of people would be able to actually work from home. So this would be a lot of uh, people that have white collar jobs, right? So bankers, tellers, people in information, researchers versus people that can't work from home, such as teachers, people that work in uh, food manufacturing and, right. and farming and, and other hands-on type jobs. And we determined that about 50 to 60% of the working population in the U.S. would actually be able to work remotely. Um, and we tracked that through the pandemic. Um, at its peak, gasoline demand declined by, I believe, 47 to 50% from pre-pandemic levels. Um, and that peak happened in the month of, of April of 2020. It slowly began to come back as you saw mostly southern states kind of opening up their economies again. Mm -hmm. um, kids were going back to school. And so the question then became this change that happened of people pre-pandemic worked from home at a level of about 5%. So 5% of the working population actually worked from home or the way that we define that is at least three days or more um, okay. away from the office. How much of that could be expected to actually stick post this peak that we saw or that we observed in the month of April? And so we began to follow surveys. We asked a lot of industry or uh, peers within that, that were conducting research and, and studies, specifically surveys. And we came to the conclusion that we are going to expect a permanent change. We internally anticipate that that 5% post-pandemic is going to look more like 10%, so about a doubling from the pre-pandemic levels. And the effect that we would expect to see from people no longer driving to and from the office in terms of eroded or degraded vehicle miles traveled is not a full 25% right what we saw was an increase in errands throughout the day um, a lot of okay. people when they're coming home from work they stop at the grocery store or the post office or wherever um, so now what you're seeing people do at least the ones that are working from home is they're taking lots of trips throughout the day right and just logically thinking right if you're going out in the middle of the day versus rush hour morning or rush hour evening your average commute speed is going to increase. And so people are able to travel further distances without having to sit in a car for any longer than they would otherwise if they were commuting during uh, rush hour. And so what we saw was an increase in miscellaneous trips that are not to and from work, um, as well as an average increase in speed, which means that people are driving further distances. And when you tabulate these pluses and minuses to total vehicle miles traveled, what we saw was that, yes, there is a structural decrease in total vehicle miles traveled as a result of the pandemic and people working from home. But that decrease is not as significant as that 25% reduction would suggest, or even the 10% in a post-pandemic world, because of those offsetting miles, right, where people are going to the grocery store more often more. instead of walking to get their coffees in their office, they're going to Starbucks or other local coffee shops or, or bakeries. And so that net decrease we observe to be closer to a negative 2% rather than <laughs> 10 or even the, the potential 25%, which would be of a, 
a ceiling really right yeah and so really long way to say that yes there's been structural changes but they haven't been as significant as as we anticipated it to be and and that was an intriguing find after spending a number of weeks researching the uh, the subject which i think has been kind of true and this is maybe a conversation outside of all of our wheelhouses no pun intended but with uh electricity that that and heating and things like that that, that even though energy is more efficient with better doors and windows and things like that, that we still use more in every if ounce of efficiency that we gain. I think we spend more energy in the process uh, just because the demand kind of fills in. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You've got, and you've got a lot more people, right? Rather than, you know, when you go off to the office and a lot of more modern thermostats that track when you're in or outside of your home. Yeah. If you're all in the same place, you're able to control to a single temperature and you have one single unit. Whereas if we're all at home, and the office building is still open because you've got a handful of people that have to be physically present because they can't do their job from home. It's still using the same amount of energy. Yeah. yeah. Less. yeah and, and if we're yeah. wrong, some of our power colleagues can, can contact us to correct us. But <laughs> these are our guesses. So, Todd, uh, you know, I want to get your thoughts on all this, uh, but particularly on, on the car side of things or the automobile side of things. So has any of the changes in driving behavior kind of do, do they reveal themselves in the types of cars people are buying the the big headlines on automobiles over the past two years have been that the prices are bananas and used cars are they're they're like gold yeah i think i think the answer is partially really uh, and the reason i say partially is because we have not been able to keep up with the, the demand for new vehicles what's been really interesting about the past two years uh with the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic is that there's been really high demand for vehicles. You know, much like vehicle miles traveled dipped uh, in April of 2020, March, April, and then started to come back, demand for vehicles did the same thing. By the back half of 2020s, the demand was back to pretty strong levels, not quite to 2019, but near 2019. And then all through the past year, demand's been really high, but supply's been really challenged. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we can go into it later if we want or not, but you know, supply chain challenges, chip shortages, uh, manufacturers building vehicles uh, that, you know, that they can basically, and just doing what they can to keep uh, throughput uh, has hampered a little bit, I would say, the uh, potential of the consumer to buy what they want. But we certainly have seen a lot of vehicles changing hands, a lot of used vehicles. Uh, There seems to be continual demand for moving from a traditional car to more of a truck, a little bit larger vehicles, you know, your crossover utility or sport utility vehicles uh, and pickup trucks and everything else. And one of the things that we've seen tracking out of the pandemic is that it seems like the recreational miles traveled really also filled in some of that gap in the commuter miles traveled. So not only are we working from home and we're doing errands during the day and we're getting out here and there, but, uh, it seemed like there was uh, a return to the good old fashioned road trip as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you couple what we saw with recreational vehicle sales as well, like uh, recreational vehicle sales went off the charts too and ran into the same supply challenges really because people were buying campers to go camping. Socially distant traveling was was a thing and uh, it, still, it still is to an extent. And I do believe that'll be with us for, for a while. But all those things together, we definitely have seen not only, you know, I would echo what Felipe said, we've been saying vehicle miles traveled has been back most of this year, you know, 2% down, I would say that's back and it's probably waffle back and forth between 
down and up uh, mm-hmm. most of the year uh, with fuel prices rising. Obviously, it's strained a little bit now, but uh, but all those factors together seem to have caused people to get out more. But it is different when you're on the highway. It seems like there's more people out more times of the day, but it also seems like the speeds are out of control. So we're definitely seeing it. We're seeing uh, changing behaviors and uh, really changing opportunities because of that. And were those the the, the kind of big surge in purchases, were they expected based on, you know, I assume that people get to in, in large numbers, a certain age or a certain amount of miles on a car and they look to trade something in and or get a new one. Was that at the same cycle with this pandemic or were people replacing their cars sooner than we would have expected in a normal year? No, we we were actually already forecasting that we we would begin to see a little bit of a, bit of a decline in new vehicle sales before the pandemic because we were on five five years of record level sales basically. We had five years where we were right at or just over 17 million units sold on the light vehicle side per year ending in 2019. We expected 2020 would be down a little bit, but then it came down a lot further than we expected. So we were kind of expecting a little bit of a pullback, but but really I think the decisions that are causing people to sell their vehicles are being challenged because of the supply chain shortage. You mentioned the used vehicle values. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's totally changed the dynamic of the replace versus repair decision. Like if your vehicle that used to be worth $5,000 is now worth $15,000, you're probably going to go ahead and put another set of tires on it and run it for a little while longer because you can't get anything anyways. So mm-hmm. I think um, what we're going to see coming out of this, and we expect it probably more in 2023 and 2024, is that there'll be a little bit of a kind of a whip back action where we'll whip back to new sale numbers that are a little bit higher than we expected because there is pent up demand. And, uh, you know, it's kind of all depressed right now. And we think it's going to snap back uh, in 2023, 2024 uh, with some really nice uh, sales numbers because vehicles are getting miles and yeah. people are uh, would like to replace them. They just can't. And when you look at the types of vehicles sold, what were they on in terms of new? What were they on trend? I mean, I, I, the, the pickup truck is the one that always seems to to hit records in the U.S. And But obviously electric vehicles are... You know, we were just talking before we started recording that Tesla recorded earnings, reported earnings yesterday um, and apparently did a very good job with it. Are you seeing the same? Does the fleet look the same as you would have expected or has the mix changed? One of the things we were seeing before the pandemic was there was a a migration from passenger vehicles to light commercial vehicles. We actually didn't expect that we would get to a three to one ratio until about 2025. That actually happened last year. It's kind of coming back just a little bit below right now, but uh, but but we accelerated to selling three truck body styles per every car body style uh, in 2020. Yeah. 2021 came back a little bit, but we're right about there where it's three trucks. So crossover utility vehicle, sport utility vehicle, pickup truck, van versus a traditional car, which is a sedan, a coupe, sports car. Uh, it's three to one. Three, th- three out of every four we sell is a truck. Uh, and that did accelerate a little bit during the pandemic, probably partially due to manufacturers trying to build what they could make the most money on. They make the yeah. most on trucks, but partially because consumer demand is there. They could sell every truck they made. So why wouldn't you make them on your electric vehicle question? That was one fascinating thing through 2020 is electric vehicles did continue to increase in sales, whereas everything else decreased. 
electric vehicles did continue to increase in sales through 2020 and through 2021, nearly uh, doubling both years. I, I, I don't have the final numbers in front of me for 2021, but um, you know, we sold about 255,000 electric vehicles in 2020. I think it was closer to four or 500 uh, in 2021, but I haven't okay. seen the final numbers yet. And is this that's four or five hundred thousand? I'm sorry. So, so Felipe, is is that helping to explain some of the reduction? Because, because I guess the other trend that is the electrification of a fleet that that we would expect, and with driving or commuting falling to the degree that it has, but fuel demand not falling to the degree, are are the trucks making this up? That, that in addition to to us filling in that gap, are we driving less gas efficiently? To an extent, yeah. So, and and it it also is attributable to the fact that the vehicle fleet mix has changed so much since. If if you look back to the year two thousand, the reverse was true. You had three cars for every light truck uh, that was sold in the U.S. And as vehicles have become more efficient, and fuel prices have remained relatively stable compared to the rest of the world in the United States, consumers are making their purchase choices with a fixed budget in mind, right? So mm -hmm. if they can spend X hundreds of dollars a month, and that includes fuel, car payments, and insurance, they're buying as big of a car as they can because it's more comfortable, there's more space, um, and, and people generally leave a lot of things in their cars, especially if they have kids, so like sporting equipment, <laughs> car uh, uh, prams, and, and other things. And so, it, to an extent, yes, Hill, right? Like VMT, it's recovered, um, as Todd shared with us, and it's it's kind of going back and forth between pre-pandemic levels and 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 slightly below the the seasonal average. But it it's been interesting because we get a lot of questions about, you know, is this happening because of vehicle electrification? And short of the answer today is no, right? Ninety-nine percent of the light vehicle fleet in the United States and the rest of the world are powered by either gasoline or diesel mm -hmm. um and so it it's going to take a little bit longer for us to uh, before electric vehicles are actually displacing a significant volume of conventional fuels so today the displacement is coming purely from fuel efficiency standard increases right even as vehicles are becoming larger if you're replacing a 15 to 25 year old F-150 with a brand new F-150 or other um, light or medium sized pickup truck or SUV, that new vehicle is still much more efficient than the older than the older vehicle that is being scrapped and is being replaced. Um, so it, it's not quite yet there where we think that battery electric vehicles is really moving the needle in terms of fuel demand erosion. And do we think, I don't know if we look at this data, but if you look at financing versus cash purchases, has that, did, did that change or was that on trend? And, and as rates rise, will that put people back in a more modest sedan um, rather than a tricked out truck? I'm going to speak to what I know, and I think Todd might know a little bit more than me about this, but what I can say is that the average length of vehicle loans has increased. Okay. The average price of a new vehicle has also increased. Um, and that increase has been happening year on year for the last five to seven years, Todd. Yep. And so I think it's pretty safe bet to extrapolate that if loan terms are increasing and vehicle prices are increasing, that people are increasingly paying more for vehicles to stay again within whatever that fixed budgets they have, 
But as far as the percentage of people that are financing versus buying cash, I, I don't have any insights into that. Do you, Todd? I don't have those insights in front of me, but uh, you you are absolutely right that more people are taking longer loans. It used to be 60 month was the loan. Then it moved to 72. Now you're seeing a lot of 84 offers, you know, and wow. that's a that's a really long loan. It speaks to the longevity of the vehicles. You know, I think there's a consensus across the board. People realize that vehicles last longer, they're higher dollar, and they're more comfortable taking those loans out. And so definitely the cost has gone up. The chip shortage, the supply mm-hmm. chain challenges, and the pandemic has drove the cost of new vehicles even higher and reduced the amount of rebates and uh, special incentives that manufacturers have to offer to almost nothing to sell vehicles. And so the price is going up. I really personally think the catalyst to drive people back down to smaller cars will be if fuel prices go up significantly and stay up. I think it used to be $3 a gallon was the uh, inflection point. I really think it's probably more like $4 a gallon or even higher now before we would start seeing that change in behavior just because people are kind of, they don't love $3 a gallon gas, but they're pretty comfortable with it across the board. And that's average, obviously. I know in California it's higher, but... uh, that seems to be the thing that would cause people to go smaller. That's what we saw during the Great Recession. People started going smaller. Of course, we had a lot of different challenges going on there. But when gas yeah. was high, people were going smaller. Once gas prices came down, people went rapidly bigger. <laughs> so, um, so, so I don't about, think the trend's going to change that much. How about on the longevity of the cars? And, and and I don't know if this is true or not, but I used to deliver pizza. Well, that that is true. I used to deliver pizza. And there was this guy, Mike, and Mike had delivered pizza for years. Uh, and his trick was just leave your car running for the entire shift because if you stop and tr- if you stop and start your car, every time you get back to Papa John's, that's who it was that I was delivering pizzas for. You're going to end up with you know having to replace all these things in your car and you're going to wear your car so just leave it running and which would seem to be similar with the commute i guess one was mike right is that true that i should have left my car running the the, the my whole shift and uh if so does that higher frequency of going to the grocery store or going to the post office or whatever is that going to shorten the lifespan of these cars i think it's an interesting question i do think um there are a lot of mechanics Tales that would tell you that, you know, if you keep it running, keep the fluids flowing, that's the best because the fluids are flowing. But the caveat there is you do have to make sure you're replacing the fluids regularly. I mean, that's the lifeblood mm-hmm. of the vehicle. If you're replacing your fluids, uh, keeping your uh, your seals all lubricated and, you know, taking care of your vehicle, putting good gas in, yeah, if you keep it running, it's probably better. I mean, when you think about what happens when a vehicle starts, it's a pretty rough thing where it, that starter's spinning and trying to force the engine to start. Uh, so there's some stress there, but I think the vehicles altogether are engineered so well these days. I mean, it used to be that people would talk about Toyota and Honda being, you know, a cut above the rest. And I still would argue that they probably are a cut above the rest, to be honest. But I think the gap is so much narrower than it used to be in the quality of vehicles that, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, we're just engineering vehicles that are lasting much longer. You know, here in the north, vehicles probably rust out mm-hmm. if you do a good job of taking care of the fluids. The vehicle probably starts falling apart before the, you know, the mechanical pieces are really in bad shape. You know, we see a lot less in the aftermarket business. We see a lot less engine rebuilds than we used to, uh, you know, a lot less transmission rebuilds. You know, a lot of that is just crate. Now people take a crate engine or transmission, drop it in the vehicle and it'll go for another several, you know, another hundred thousand miles or whatever. But it's get, it's lessening and lessening when it comes to replacing those hard parts. And uh, 
So your buddy delivering pizzas probably was right. <laughs> but, um, you know, really the vehicles have gotten a lot better. You know, you figure the internal combustion engine has about 100 years now of refinement into it. Mm-hmm. And um, the engineering is fascinating in the internal combustion engine. And so and I think that getting back to the electric vehicles, that's one of the challenges of the electric vehicle is even though it's modern technology and it's learning from the internal combustion engine, you know, we're only... 10-ish years into the, maybe 15-ish years into the life cycle of EVs. There were some back in the 90s, but really it's been the last 10, 15 years where there's been focus. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing those engineering advancements impact the electric vehicle fleet as well, that uh, the internal combustion engine has enjoyed for 100 years uh, because uh, they they definitely last a long time. When when we're looking at this as it uh, applies to to some of the fuel demand, that I mean, the the big thing that I guess is hanging out there is uh, the electric truck, right? And, and I think Ford has what the F one fifty, what's Lightning. it called? Lightning. Yep. Um, there there's Rivian that is apparently ramping up its plans. I don't I don't know if it's plans or operations. And then Tesla has the, the Cybertruck. Um, and I think, and I, I may misquote the numbers, but I was listening to the program yesterday where the F-150 has pre-orders for something like 250,000 compared to the Cybertruck of 150,000. So, so high pre-sales d- demand, is that going to have an impact on fuel demand in the way that we maybe thought electric vehicles would have? If, if you can get a truck and electric, does that start to make a dent in things for us? I think it it starts to make a dent hill, but again, it you have to move like the volume has to be there, right? When you start thinking about a modern F one fifty, right, the latest one with the most efficient engine configuration, engine and po- and, and and transmission configuration, I should say, you're probably averaging close to 25, 24 miles per gallon, whereas it's replacing something that was averaging. 13 to maybe 15 if we're being generous considering that they're old and probably not that well taken care of and and again that's just one vehicle out of the us's hundreds of millions of vehicles that are on the road right i think the total number is north to 250 million todd north to 280 million there you go yeah yeah so you really i mean and and if you're think if you're talking f-150 volumes today ford sells or I'm going to cite a pre-pandemic number because I think I'm more confident in that. They they move over half a million F-150s every year. Easy. Yep. And 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 that's not you know anywhere close to their record year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you start thinking about 250,000 F-150s, it's a big number, but it's still less than one percent of of right. vehicle fleet turnover, right? And until you get to about a third or more of the vehicle fleet, you don't see a huge fuel demand impact, right? And so if you look out to 2050, our current assumption is that U.S. new vehicle sales will be north of about 50%. Um, And if you assume a 50% number, given the average age of a vehicle on the road today, you get to a fleet or total vehicles on road, the percent of those that would be battery electric is less than half of that right so it's like 20 to 22 percent and it's because the u.s personal vehicle fleet isn't expected to increase like some other emerging markets Um, our vehicle fleet is mature it's stable and our population is expected to age and 
not really be replenished, right? When you start thinking about um, fertility rates in the U.S., it's in decline, um, and immigration is down as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of what would drive population growth, the factors just aren't there for the United States. Um, and that has an effect on GDP, which also has an effect on new vehicle sales, right? And so we well, think that- don't want to drive anymore, right? I mean, I, There's I also want, that, yeah, yeah. We all wanted our driver's license the day we turned 16. And my sense is that 16 year olds, whether Uber, whether Lyft, whether they stay at home and just play video games by themselves, we're not seeing that trend of new car sales in the 16 year olds are we yeah yeah and think about why we wanted a driver's license to see our friends to be socially active you don't need that anymore today right we have access to cell phones with video cameras we're all online communicating we're learning we work online right if you look at us if you take us as examples yeah um and so that need to go out and drive is is not quite there anymore and then also traffic today is horrendous <laughs> anywhere in the u.s right <laughs> um and so it's a stressful experience to go out and learn to drive in heavy traffic but then also we think that um and i guess this is slightly deviating from the path that we're, we're on right now but autonomous tech is something that has the potential to significantly disrupt personal vehicle sales and ownership, mm-hmm. right? If it's something that matures and is cost competitive with what we're familiar with today, why would you want to drive yourself other than for the joy enjoyment of driving, which is how often do you do that, right? Hill living in Texas where everything is a straight line, unless you're in Austin or West of Austin, because if you're in Austin proper, you're in gridlock traffic, right? We, we think that that has a potential to disrupt the market because you're essentially buying a time machine, right? Think about our average commute times living close to downtown and our office being 17, 18 miles away, you're stuck in traffic each way, at least 30 to 40 minutes every day. Mm. If you can get that time back to where you can get started on your work day, you could potentially work fewer hours while present in the office. If you're tired, you can take a nap, you could eat. There's so much that you could do. And then those vehicles also have the potential to disrupt personal vehicle miles traveled, right? If you think about how many households in the U.S. have multiple cars in them today? Yeah. Um, I think the average household in the U.S. owns 2.1 cars, I think is the number. Autonomous vehicles or self-driving vehicles would have the potential to decrease that number. It brings that number down because a single vehicle could provide a service of driving someone or picking somebody up without you necessitating the ownership of multiple cars. Right. And so it has the potential to decrease new vehicle sales, but also to perhaps make the vehicles more expensive. Because if you have budget for two vehicles and now you're buying a single vehicle, mm-hmm. maybe you buy an even bigger car. <laughs> um, and so that trend continues in that direction. Right. So it's it's an interesting thought and, and we think it's coming. Um, it's certainly not going to be here next year. Yeah. Um, but if you start thinking beyond 2030, the technology is being tested. It, it's not yet fully commercialized. But if you think about the players that want to see this succeed, the likes of Uber and Lyft, they have a lot riding on the line, right? When you think about why they're not as profitable as they should or could be today, it's because they have drivers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they have to pay those drivers. Well, you, you introduce it, so I'm, I'm going to go there with you. But so, so what are the, uh, obviously there, there's some technology barriers to, to, to getting us there. I think insurance is another big one, right? Which is why yeah, Tesla yeah, has the yeah. agreement that it does with some insurer out there to, to, to get around some of this. The, the I guess the, the two things that I think about with this are one, 
many of us expect these great advances in technology to be there five years earlier than they actually will be there. And then two, the, the kind of the failed promise of technology, right? That by now we were supposed to be on hoverboards according to Back to the Future. And instead we've got these stupid little things that are called hoverboards, but they're two wheels that actually just roll down the ground, right? And we were expecting flying cars and we got a 60 character limit on Twitter because all the money went to social media rather than fire cars, flying cars. <laughs> so, so, so what's... What's the constraint? And realistically speaking, if this is a real world for us, when when does that start to kind of be there? So today's constraints are around costs, right? When you think about LiDAR technology or the, the, the sensors that vehicles are equipped with uh, that are autonomous or self-driving, usually you have one big one kind of on the top of the car it's it's unsightly it's noisy mm -hmm. it has mechanically it has mechanical parts that because they move it's currently spinning in order for it to be successful first that cost has to come down um, right and there is a lot being done with making solid state lidars where you have small panels that you can then place all around the car some people talk about integrating it into body trim into the headlights and taillights and, and other parts of the vehicle to still give you that 360 degree view or field of view that's necessary for that for the car then you also have an issue of communication right the cars have to be able to talk to something or someone today where we see deployment of self-driving vehicles they typically are geofenced meaning they operate within a certain parameter what automakers are doing today and when you and then you have to start thinking about the different levels of automation right so if you think about no automation whatsoever that's called a level zero whereas a fully autonomous car without any user input say level five today we're kind of at that level two to level three split right even if you mm -hmm. take tesla's autopilot um, uh, system or full self-driving as they're beginning to call it and roll out to to to, to people to try out um or what Ford and, and GM and Daimler are doing, these all require someone to still have their hands on the steering wheel and they can only be used under certain driving conditions, right? And General Motors and, and Ford go as far as limiting certain highways, whereas Tesla kind of lets you do whatever um, and you see what happens in the news. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, the, the technology, there's also, there's no agreed upon set of rules for what exactly is necessary for it to be fully self-driving and that's why you see tesla today using cameras they've gotten mm -hmm. rid of their radar systems um, or sensors even in their vehicles whereas traditional oems are unwilling to get rid of that extra safety feature right it, it acts as a secondary mechanism in case a camera or or, or more sure. fail and then you also have the issue of legislation right there are no real rules for what should happen. Um, and I think the reason that you see a lot of trials in the US is because there aren't regulations and the way that the US works is if you're doing something and there are no rules around us, as long as you're not harming anybody or anyone or anything, you can carry on, right? Yeah. And so in Europe, nope, not happening. It, it's very limited there and you see the Europeans coming here, you see the Chinese even coming here to test their, their technology and to do trial runs. And it's a combination of the two, right? So it's, it's the technology having to come down in cost. The packaging has to change as well. It's Today, it's big and unsightly. Um, and you also have that issue of legislation, right? Which is yeah. going to lead to another issue, which is liability. 
you can look at the incident that Uber uh, had a few years ago where someone was overseeing the vehicle's testing, right? They were using a vehicle to test their self-driving capabilities on a freeway. It didn't operate as expected when it approached uh, someone that was on the freeway and an accident occurred. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of questions around, was it the car's fault? Was it the driver's fault that was overseeing the car? Or was it Uber's fault? And so the whole industry shut down to figure out one, what happened and two, what they needed to do before they moved forward with any future um, trial. So it, it's kind of a combination of everything, you know, right? We're, we're in the wild west of, of <laughs> automation right now. And it's interesting to, to, to see what's happening. We have personally pushed back our forecast for vehicle automation by uh, a few years. Um, we also thought that by 2022, 2023, you'd have more commercialization of it. And a pandemic just, you know, put a big roadblock in the middle of it. Companies stopped investing. Um, there weren't people that were available to, to be used as testers. Um, and so you've seen development really significantly slow down over the last. But does does inflation turbocharge that? I mean, there's all this talk of all the wage increases for, you know, cashiers at grocery stores and, and other jobs like that. If I am Uber and my drivers are going to be demanding more wages, I am re-incentivized to get rid of those drivers in the same way that HEB or non-HEB for people outside of Texas is incentivized to get rid of cashiers when they're having to pay a cashier's 10% more. That's, that's a great point, Hill. We, even though that is happening, we haven't factored out into our outlooks at the moment. It, it's certainly something that we are discussing, but we've, we've not yet made any significant changes. Um, I, I think that the issue of inflation and wages is something that is still being fully understood, sure. right? It, it's there's some obvious signs, like you said, but you know, when I go to the grocery store, I don't see my bills being necessarily all that much higher, um, which would be indicative of the higher wages. And Big Macs, for example, aren't more expensive either, right? They're slightly more expensive, but you know, they they haven't doubled in price. Um, Get some eggs and bacon. <laughs> eggs and bacon have been pretty much doubled in price. <laughs> well, I, so, so I, I want to be conscious of time and respect we all's time. I, I could continue this conversation all day long and <laughs> talk about sports with Todd. But but Todd, maybe just to kind of wrap things up, when we're looking at this future world that Felipe just described, you know, he introduced liability concerns, he introduced technology, and, and I think Felipe knows we've talked about it before, but, but I view a lot of the traditional auto manufacturers as many of them building boxes to move around somebody else's fancy technology, whereas Tesla itself is building technology to move around that, that it owns. Yep. Sitting in Detroit, do you see the auto manufacturers gaining or regaining a competitive advantage in this, or are we going to be building boxes to move around NVIDIA or something else? Um, and is the auto industry of this future world not going to be the names Ford and GM, but more the names Apple or something that we haven't even introduced yet? I think that's a very interesting question. I do think from the electric vehicle side, I do think we already talked a little bit about F-150 Lightning, Silverado's mm -hmm. coming out, Hummer's coming out. I do think the traditional automakers have made uh, some pretty serious strides 
on the electric vehicle side. And I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see as they come into the marketplace with more the non-luxury electric vehicles. I mean, when you really think Tesla, Tesla really sets itself in the market with, against the Mercedes or a BMW more than a Fusion or a, you know, a Impala. And so I do think they've come a long ways on electric. But the question that, that you're asking as far as the advanced technologies, I do think that uh, that's yet to be written. They're making a lot of investments, but there's also making a lot of strategic partnerships mm -hmm. with the NVIDIAs of the world. Uh, but there are a lot of tier one suppliers. Um, you know, you've got some like ZF um, and Bosch uh, that are doing a lot of research when it comes to and a lot of development when it comes to vehicle systems that will support autonomy. We do have a, a ton of the technology required for autonomy does sit on the vehicle today. What we really seem to lack is the ability to process all of those inputs, you know, from cameras and from LIDAR and from radar, vehicle to vehicle communication, vehicle to surrounding communication. Like that's one of the pieces that seems to be missing. You know, I've got a 2021 F-150 that's got a ton of the technology. It's got collision avoidance. It's got lane keeping. Mm -hmm. It's got adaptive cruise control and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of that technology that is coming in through the tier one suppliers, the traditional automotive channel. But I do think that the innovation right now does seem to be coming from uh, a lot of the traditional chip manufacturers, you know, your NVIDIA's, obviously Tesla, Apple, Google, you know, Google's done a ton on autonomous driving. But um, but Ford's setting up a whole campus here in Detroit. They bought the old train station. They're, they're reviving it. That's going to become their electric and autonomous hub. There's okay. a ton going on at the University of Michigan. So, so I think they recognize it. Uh, the question will be, as they evolve, will they be able to evolve rapidly enough to, to keep up with Silicon Valley? Yeah. Well, it's all moving very fast. And I'll say this and we can wrap up, but I've got a, uh, just to, to, to show how old fashioned I guess I am, I've got a Mazda stick shift. Nice. Um, that, that has the, the fanciest thing it has aside from the Bluetooth uh, radio is a rear view camera. And my son, who is uh, almost 12, is so impressed with me because the Bluetooth camera has broken and he's seen me back into a parking spot without hitting things. <laughs> and I was like, no, this used to be the way that, that we had to do it. But, but for him, it was just this world. How, how would people go backwards? without a Bluetooth, without a camera on their on their car. So uh, ho hopefully soon we will all be looking at things of how could people live without that. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you both. I, I do hope we can do this again. Uh, this is a run uh, longer than, than I expected, but it's a super interesting topic. And we didn't even touch on everything, Hill. There's just I so know. much, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you should have an old dedicated episode to vehicle, uh, autonomous vehicle technology. Um, it, it's super interesting. Well, uh, I will take you up on that for sure. All right, Felipe Todd, thank you both. Thank Thanks, you guys. Thanks. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.